Welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Ayersdale. On this episode, we hear from Alicia Garza. Alicia is a celebrated and very influential activist and organizer whose name you've likely heard connected to uh, any number of initiatives, but she is perhaps best known for her work as the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and hashtag Black Lives Matter. She left BLM years ago, and more recently, she has worked as the principal behind the Black Futures Lab and its affiliated Black Census Project. Now, the Census Project itself is a survey of hundreds of thousands of Black respondents about key issues affecting their communities, whether it's economic inequity, educational inequity, police violence, mass incarceration, and and then using that information to guide the positions and policies of the Black Futures Lab, of which Alicia is the principal. So she leads uh, these initiatives. She's a native Californian and her awakening to and her participation in social and racial justice and activism is rooted in her native Bay Area, particularly in Oakland. We talk a lot about that activism and its influence over the years. She's been at it for quite a while. Uh, Alicia and I also talk about why she thinks California isn't necessarily given the historical do it deserves as an engine of black culture. She's definitely doing her part. Maybe you've heard her podcast, Lady Don't Take No. And two years ago this month, she published her book, The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. And uh, we did look back on the book, talk about that a little bit. And of course, we talk all about Alicia's own California story and end this episode, as we do with all guests, with her telling us who her favorite Californian is. I think Alicia's choice is a very, very good one. It was a real thrill. Just a total pleasure to speak with Alicia. I was so, so glad to have her on the show, and I'm so pleased to bring our conversation to you. Let me know what you think. Please drop me a line. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. It's always great to hear from you. Meanwhile, let's get to it. Here's me with Alicia Garza on What is California. Enjoy. Alicia Garza, welcome to What is California. It is such a pleasure to welcome you here. I look forward to talking to you about your work and uh, your experience in California, but let's start at the very beginning, if we could. What is your California story? Are you from here originally? Is that right? I am from California originally. I was um, born and raised in the Bay Area and um, spent most of my time in Marin County from a small child all the way through high school, and then uh, went to school uh, at UC San Diego, and then promptly returned to the Bay Area, where I spent, um, you know, the next 20 plus years. And um, California will always be home, but I have now made a new home, I should say a second home. Uh, in Georgia. Do you live in Georgia permanently now or do you kind of, are you by coastal as they say? Well, you know, what's permanent these days? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I'm here, I'm here now and um, 
yeah, I'm here now. So in what ways has your kind of home area of California changed over the years? Uh, how do you feel about the changes? Oh, gosh. Well, listen, I, I grew up in Marin County, which, um, as you know, has a lot of beautiful open space and is rabid about protecting it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember as a kid, um, you know, we lived up on top of this hill and one of my best girlfriends lived on the bottom of that hill. And I remember being able to just walk a trail, you know, down, sure, yeah. <laughs> down the mountain right. and make it to her place. And then when I got brave enough, I would ride my bike down that trail. <laughs> Off-roading. <laughs> oh, my God, that was death-defying. You could have killed yourself. But at the time, it was just fun and quicker. Uh-huh. Um, I remember, you know, riding my bike along the bike path, uh, in Tiburon, um, playing soccer on that big, beautiful field right by the water, uh, being, you know, made to run drills up the hill on top of the soccer field, what became a soccer field, uh, for, for PE, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> um, you know, and so I, I will just say that, um, you know, growing up in Marin, I think one of the major things that has shifted um, is that in some ways it's become more citified, even though it's kind of kept its character. So mm -hmm. uh, there's no more, you know, trails to my girlfriend's house. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, they, they are pretty um, serious about protecting that space. I'll also say, you know, even my high school has changed. Um you know, a couple of years ago, I had occasion to kind of drive by there and I was like, what is that? <laughs> That's not cool <laughs> that I remember going to. So there's a lot of things that have changed. I, I spent 20 years, uh, you know, in Oakland and San Francisco, and that is where I feel that I've seen the most drastic changes. And in particular, I think I've been now through at least two, if not three kind of dot-com booms where... Um, you know, a whole sector really expanded to um, uh, to the Bay Area. And as a result, I think uh, the population really shifted. Uh, we got a lot of folks from not from California uh, moving into Oakland and San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, change happens. And I would say um, part of that change is policy driven and part of it, right, is just circumstance. Uh, but the policy-driven change is the change that I worry most about, which is that, you know, building regulations and the type of buildings and the ways in which communities have shifted um, largely has been uh, policy-driven to accommodate the needs of a very wealthy tech sector and to deprioritize the needs of the people who lived there before. So you can see in communities like Bayview Hunters Point or even, you know, communities in Oakland, California, you know, that didn't have access to full service grocery stores or, um, you know, paved roads. Right. I remember I used to drive uh, with friends through the Bayview on Third Street and it was like kind of largely unpaved. And by unpaved, I mean, it hadn't been maintained for a while. Yeah. yeah. Well, the streets are glittery and shiny and it's got a, a, right. a train going up and down it. Um, and so, yes, it could potentially benefit people who live there now, although it wasn't designed with those people in mind. Um, yeah. and so those are some of the shifts that I've seen. What is your earliest memory of California? Why do you think that memory has stuck with you? 
my earliest memory of California, I think, is living in the Canal District, um, where I was kind of raised. And where's that? Oh, it's in San Rafael. Um, okay. It is. Let's see. There used to be a big furniture store there called Litchfields, and it was like this big neon kind of Las Vegas style sign. Okay. I think they kept the sign, but the furniture store is gone. Uh, it, it is um, behind uh, San Rafael High School, kind of to the east, I guess I would say. Um, and it uh, is largely a working class community, mostly. Uh, Latinx community, but certainly there's tons of black folks that live there too. Um, and I think my earliest memory there, honestly, is um, living in the apartments that I was kind of raised in for the first part of my life. And so I remember we had a small kind of um, uh, patio type thing that was kind of fenced in, right? And behind it, was a pool that I was absolutely not allowed to go to unless I was with adult supervision. And I have this weird memory. So my mom, when she had me, she was uh, a, a newly single person and she uh, shared an apartment with her twin brother, my uncle, who uh, was also there to help her take care of me. And she worked during the day and my uncle worked at night. And I do have this hilarious memory of uh, my mom coming home one afternoon. And uh, I believe that my uncle was kind of holding me up by maybe like a shirt or something and like holding the tail of a cat that we had. What? <laughs> the other hand, I'm covered in nail polish and the cat is covered in nail polish. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> this image of my mom walking in and being like, what is going on? And my uncle be like, take these things and take them with you. And the, thing <laughs> and the cat, apparently I'd gotten into a lot of trouble. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that is definitely a vivid memory. Um, who are some Californians who've influenced or impacted you and who you are, whether it's you know leaders, mentors, artists, peers, they don't have to be famous, just folks who've really uh, made an impact. Hmm. Well, you know, one of the beautiful things about California is that um, we consider Californians to be people who have made their home in California and not like three or four years, but like, you know, maybe you came from Louisiana and you've been here. Exactly. Right. Uh, we, we embrace those people. And so um, people that stand out to me are people like Espinola Jackson, uh, who was a longtime community activist in Bayview Hunters Point. Uh, people like Jesse Powell, who, uh, you know, was somebody who I was uh, organizing with back in the early 2000s. Uh, she came from Louisiana uh, during, you know, what would have been another migration from the South to the West Coast, uh, mostly to work with the railroads. Um, she was a fierce, fierce leader. Um, other people who stand out to me, um, June Jordan, uh, who's one of my favorite poets, uh, who started a program in Berkeley, California called Poetry for the People. Um, she, I would say, is a famous Californian. Obviously, we're going to claim Tupac, although he wasn't from California. Right. Okay. Fair. We claim him like he's <laughs> ours and he is ours, but he also belongs to Baltimore. Let's see. Who else? Uh, let's shout out Shock G from Digital Underground, who recently passed away. 
one of my favorite lyricists. Um, you know, we got a shout out Tony, 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 Dwayne Wiggins and the crew who's actually born and raised in Oakland and their family, I believe was from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And funny story about Dwayne and I, um, I got to interview him for my podcast. He's a good friend of mine. And, um, he came to my house and he just so excitedly said, oh my God, you live across the street from the house that I grew up in. And he started telling me all these stories about how the freeway that I was next to didn't used to be there, right? So same story that I had where they used to walk across a dirt patch to go to the Greyhound station <laughs> that's in downtown Oakland. So, um, you know, it's it's funny how California is small and also one of the largest states in the union at the same time. It's so funny you mentioned that because I actually did an interview with someone once upon a time who was who's from Sacramento, and uh, we that was the the basis of the interview. Uh, his his upbringing and his his, uh, his background here. And as we got to talking, I realized he l- grew up in a house across the street from where I live. That's the awesome. exact same. Dynamic. I thought, how is this possible? Yeah. And so we immediately hit it off on that. We could talk about, you know, 17th Street. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I love about this state is that we all have stories like that. We have so many people in our lives who have impacted history uh, in a positive way. And we also have some negative ways too. I mean, shit, we had Ronald Reagan, right? So there's that. Um, but Richard and, Nixon, he's the only president from California, uh, yeah. officially like born and raised here. So that's, uh, yeah, you're right. Exactly. You know, stuff happens. Sometimes there's static in the algorithm, but for the most part, <laughs> uh, <laughs> for the most part, we really do, um, really uh, cultivate and nurture people who are innovators and trailblazers. Um, I'm thinking about people like um, Merle Saunders, who's part of my family, uh, who, you know, um, played with the Grateful Dead and uh, made a huge mark on San Francisco's jazz scene. Um, There are so many people like that. And I think Californians, um, wherever you're from, right? We all have stories like that. And that's something that makes us unique. Yeah. What about places and geography? How did that influence or impact you and oh. who you are? Are there any locations or roads or spaces that, uh, like a favorite California place, perhaps? Oh, well, my favorite California place is Oakland, California, obviously. Okay. Is there a particular place in Oakland that uh, stands out? No, you know what? Oakland, um, Oakland should have its full due, all of it. Uh, and I, I think the Bay area in general is obviously very special to me. Um, as a Californian, you'll know that, um, we consider our state to be at least three states in one. <laughs> there might be it's four, it depends on where you put the, where you put the lines, you know, there's far Northern California, there's the Bay area, which we call Northern California, there's the Central Valley, right? And I'm sure Central Valleyans would have some, you know, distinctions that they make there. And then there's Southern California. Right. And as a as a Northern California girl who hails from the Bay Area, um, we've always had a bit of a rivalry with Southern California. And so part of what that has to do with is weather, but it also has to do with disposition. And I have this theory 
that um, the differences amongst us also have to do with migration. So uh, especially in black communities, right? Mm -hmm. Bay Area, black folks who get a bad name sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, mostly our folks are from Louisiana and Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, Southern California folks, those folks are like Texans, you know, um, you might get some Alabama people, you know, some Tennesseans, right? Uh, but really there's some differences in terms of who came where. And then of course, you know, the industries that are um, in each of our places. So, uh, you know, up north, right? We really, uh, not only were we kind of like the last set of stops on the, on the railroads, um, but in that, um, there's a lot of innovation that was happening, right? And California is kind of known for that generally, right? We're the gold rush place. So people come to California to make it and to accomplish their dreams. Southern California, I think, um, has really always had that kind of entertainment Hollywood vibe. And so there's a difference, too, in where people go to accomplish their dreams based on the dreams that they have. Um, and yes, that has changed over time, especially with the introduction of tech. But um, in general, you can see some patterns. So all that to say, my place is the Bay Area where we have uh, trees, forest, snow, ocean, desert, all within like a three to four hour drive from us uh, in the Bay, not Southern California, but in the Bay. And um, I think that makes us well-rounded. You said a minute ago that Black folks in the Bay Area get a bad rap. Oh, totally. Why is that? <laughs> well, you know, California is not seen as one of those places that has a high density of Black people. And therefore, it's not seen as a place where Black culture is innovated. But it should be. Um, I think, you know, more of the East Coast and Southern places get a lot more of that credit. And I saw a meme on social media the other day that was talking about how weird black people are from California. And I was like, well, I mean, it depends on your perspective. I think we wouldn't see weird as pejorative, right? <laughs> but also, um, you know, California actually, I think is, I know, I can't tell you which number, but we are um, one of the top 10 most densely populated states with black people in it. Hmm. Um, but we don't often get that credit. Uh, I also know that uh, California and then the Bay Area in particular has really been a hotbed for black freedom organizing um, from the Black Panther Party for self-defense uh, to, you know, there's many different kind of trends and movements that have started in the Bay Area that have positively impacted the lives of Black people all over the country. But we don't get our proper due. And I, um, I disagree with that. Got it. Well, let's go back to the beginning, especially with your work. Uh, in your book, uh, The Purpose of Power, which was published in 2020, you write about having co-founded the Black Lives Matter Global Network, um, and I'm quoting in full for context here. I'm just going to go and read it here. Uh, quote, the OGs in my life would probably say that Black Lives Matter grew me up, but that's not quite true. My experience with BLM toughened my skin and softened my heart. It confirmed things I knew but couldn't express, clarified and sharpened my values, and taught me how to recommit to work that broke my heart every day. 
BLM accelerated my commitment to movement building, but it was the decade of organizing prior to Black Lives Matter that grew me up, end quote. So what occurred in that decade to grow you up, as you put it? I spent um, almost 20 years organizing in Black communities throughout the Bay Area, uh, mostly in Oakland and San Francisco. And um, like many people who are involved in organizing or activism, you come into the work with a certain level of idealism, um, both about what can change, how it changes, the pace and rate of change. And um, that's important, right? So when I came into organizing, I knew that the work I wanted to do was um, making Black communities powerful. And it's the work I continue to do today. And like many people who get into organizing or activism of some type, um, there are many moments um, where you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and even though I knew what I wanted to do, I had no idea how I would do it. And so um, part of what I'm referring to in that passage is learning how to organize and learning how to build relationships with people that I didn't know, learning how to build relationships between people who didn't know each other, um, learning how to impact policy that um, shaped the lives of people who I knew and didn't know and involving them in the process of shaping it in a way that would be relevant to their lives and make them more powerful because of it. And what that means is that I started off in this work with a very high level of skepticism about the effectiveness or um, uh, genuine intentions of politicians and elected officials, uh, a healthy disdain, right, for people who uh, framed Black communities as unorganizable um, or otherwise unruly. And I think a real uh, belief, right, that at the core of it, everybody wanted the same things that I did. And, um, you know, through multiple campaigns, um, to improve the everyday lives of everyday people. Um, I learned a little bit more about what was true and um, what was off base about those things that I thought. And um, one of the things that you'll know uh, about community organizing and activism and social change work is that to be good at it, you constantly have to be willing to change your mind. And do that with a sense of purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. I was not great at changing my mind as a brand new activist. And so I learned that. And it all of those things were really accelerated for me uh, through my work with Black Lives Matter. I think some of that was about scale, right? So I'd so often done work in a small, discrete community where you can see your impact tangibly. I was doing work with people who I'd been doing work for and with for years. Um, so, and that was a result of building relationships in a place for, you know, 20 plus years. And being a part of this movement and having my own contributions to it really fast forwarded my ability to organize, 
but also um, my assessment of what was possible, who it was possible with, and what needed to be done. And when I say that OGs in my life would say that, you know, BLM grew me up, it's because um, I really came into organizing in a way um, that was youthful and idealistic and optimistic. And I still am those things. Uh, but um, I'll give a concrete example. When I started organizing, I didn't really see the utility of electoral organizing as a pathway to power building. Now I do. And I got to see that quickly, uh, trying to move, motivate, activate, and educate Black folks at a national scale as opposed to in a community scale. I saw that in the midst of, um, you know, uh, uh, a country that was changing rapidly with both the election of the first Black president uh, to ever serve and then the um, subsequent election of what I would say was probably uh, was definitely the first authoritarian president in my lifetime and probably in the lifetime of my parents. Uh, so, you know, black organizing in those conditions um, makes you see things a lot differently. Uh, attempting to move a disparate group of people who may or may not have relationships with each other outside of uh, their desire to make change for black people uh, grows you up quickly. <laughs> being privy to everybody's opinions about you, what you think, what you do, whether or not you're doing it the way they would do it, and having that multiplied and amplified um, also grows you up pretty quickly. How did California policy or policing or anything else that you and your peers were seeing in this state at that time, uh, this is almost 10 years ago now, influence the origins of the Black Lives Matter global network? Well, you know, I, I always answer this question in the same way, which is um, I'm one person and <laughs> I'm from California. Patrice is from California. Uh, Opal was not from California. She, her family's from Nigeria, but she grew up in Arizona. Um, and so in as much as California shapes us as individuals, it shapes what we do in the world. But I am always careful to not draw that direct parallel of like California influenced the Black Lives Matter movement. Cause I, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that that's uh, precise for me. Um, my organizing impacted the way in which I approached um, building an organization that became a global network. So part of how my organizing shaped that, well, uh, you know, years before Trayvon Martin was killed, um, Oscar Grant was murdered in my community uh, at a BART station that was three blocks from my house. Um, and the ensuing kind of uprising that happened as a result of uh, Oscar's killer not immediately being charged uh, with his murder um, really shaped me and shaped the way that I thought about um, what it means to make Black Lives Matter. But a lot of my organizing with community members who lived in public housing, uh, community members who were longtime homeowners who were at risk of losing their homes because of punitive city policies 
and also, um, you know, economics, right? Um, really shaped the way in which I understood what it meant to shift policy to make Black Lives Matter. And uh, I'll also just add that uh, that organizing work helped me also see the racism in policy and the racism in decisions that are being made about people without them. And I'll tell a quick story. I was working uh, in Bayview Hunters Point, organizing residents in a community development that was called Oakdale. And uh, in the Oakdale housing development, uh, residents had been complaining for a long time about maintenance. Uh, those, those developments were built sometime in the 40s or 50s. They had maybe been rehabbed at some point with federal dollars in the 70s. But this was, this was the 2000s, right? The early 2000s. And so, you know, pipes needed replacing and, um, you know, structures needed replacing. And residents were complaining all the time about this, right? There was, you know, little puddles of sewage that would appear uh, that kids would play in because they would just think they were puddles. They didn't realize, oh, that stuff in there, that's toilet paper or feces or things like that. Um, and so we finally got a meeting with the, at the time, the head of public housing in San Francisco. We called the meeting with the supervisor at the time of that district, as well as the uh, engineers and the head of maintenance um, uh, for public housing uh, in San Francisco. And we brought this community together. And I remember we were in this small community room. And it was packed with residents, their kids, their family members, and people were levying their complaints. And the engineer said in front of the supervisor and the head, his boss, uh, said, well, you know, if people would just stop pouring chicken grease down the sinks, um, then the plumbing wouldn't be so bad. And it was such a shocking thing to say for me at the time. I mean, and, and I, because I was youthful, was like, wait, how does he know? Is he like? watching people like what how does he know that there's chicken grease going down the sinks why would he use the word chicken um that's racist like <laughs> some of these people don't eat meat you know what i mean like i was getting really literal and actually what i realized right stepping back from it was that so much of public policy has to do with whether or not people think that you're self-sufficient whether or not people think you're deserving of resources and rehab um and all of the policies that kind of ran that place uh, were like that. So people uh, would have their houses randomly raided, right, by police, quote unquote, looking for gang members. Uh, and people were just expected to take it, right? It didn't matter if you uh, actually had a family member who was actually in a gang or not. The suspicion of it was enough for your privacy to be invaded and your property to be destroyed. So for me... Um, when I talk about the the way in which my organizing shaped and shapes still how I participate in movement, it has everything to do with what I've seen, um, how I see our communities being treated, uh, the ways in which I see or don't see our communities being prioritized when it comes to decisions about resources. Um, and it also has to do with an ongoing fight to change the narrative that Black people are not human and deserving of humanity. And I think that, if anything, right, uh, shapes uh, the way that I do my work. 
And if there was a way that California shaped my thinking about that, I would just say California, of any place I've been, really does encourage you to think outside of the box. And California is a deeply racist place. I will say that. Um, and it's not racist in the way that people think about racism in the South, for example, but they actually are comparable. It's just that the attitude here is a little bit different than it is in Georgia. There's lots of things that are attributable to that, but I will say California, even with its racism, has always been a place where people go to be the three-dimensional version of themselves. And part of what it means and meant for me to be three-dimensional as a Black woman here um, is for Black lives and Black life uh, to also be afforded the possibility of being three-dimensional and not collapsed right into uh, stereotypes or bad policies that limit our ability to live with dignity. And so now you are the principal of an organization called Black Futures Lab. What is Black Futures Lab? And you know, with everything uh, in mind from what you were just describing, I guess, how did Black Futures Lab grow out of those instincts and, and experiences? In 2017, I ended up leaving BLM um, because I had this vision of an organization that I wanted to build that was specifically focused on making Black communities powerful in politics so that we could be powerful in the rest of our lives. And I've been pursuing that vision for the last four plus years, working hard to make sure that our communities are equipped with the tools that we need to shape and shift the rules that govern our lives every single day. If we understand racism as rules that are rigged um, to kind of concentrate power and resources in the hands of some at the expense of others, then the goal of this project, right, is to be able to use the political process uh, as one tool to undo rigged rules and to replace them with rules that increase the dignity of everyone, specifically Black people, uh, but by default, right, when Black people have the things that we need to live well, um, it opens up opportunities for all people to have the things that they need to live well. Um, so what we do at the lab uh, is we train people how to write, win, and implement new policy in cities and states. We change stories about who Black people are and who we can be and what we want to see from our government. Um, we uh, collect recent and relevant data on who Black people are in this country and what we experience every day and what we want to see for our futures. And we advocate um, for those agenda items uh, through our civic engagement work where we educate, activate, and motivate Black voters all over the country. Uh, but specifically, we are focused in California, North Carolina, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Louisiana. So how has it made an impact on California to date? Well, we have uh, conducted what is widely considered to be the largest survey of Black people in America in over 150 years with the Black Census. And this year, we are striving for a goal of becoming the largest survey of Black people ever in history. 
We have endorsed candidates in California um, that we know are uh, good for our communities. Um, and some of those and some of those candidates have gone on to pursue incredible things. Um, we make sure that black voters in California are educated, activated, and aware. We have um, trained black serving organizations to win new rules in California. And in fact, uh, in 2020, we had a uh, law signed by the governor that was designed in our Black to the Future Public Policy Institute uh, that essentially um, keeps young women and girls um, who uh, are survivors of domestic violence or intimate partner violence um, out of the criminal justice system and in their communities and with their families and healing and healthy and happy. And I would say we're just getting started. What would you say is the biggest challenge that California faces and how can it be surmounted? Oh, uh, the biggest challenge that California faces is how to resource communities equitably and evenly to ensure that prosperity can thrive and that communities who have been suffering under the weight of exclusion can also thrive. And in your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about California? People think that California is the progressive bastion of the country. And for those of us who have lived there, I would say, yes, there's a lot of progressivism. But again, California is a big place. So you can't say that the Bay Area or Los Angeles is the extent of California. It is not. And we actually have some very complicated politics in this state uh, that often get washed away. Like what? Um, well, actually, there's large pockets of Southern and Central California that are actually extremely conservative. California is considered largely to be a democratic state, and it is. Uh, but, you know, that could change at any time. And it just depends who does the best organizing. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Actually, uh, we have blue pockets in the state. And then we have large swaths of, of red. And um, lots of times people don't get that because of the image that California projects across the country. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? Oh, my gosh. Um, you know what? I'm going to give this one. Um, and it is well-deserved, uh, to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. You know, she is a fantastic woman. And uh, for those of you who don't know her, you really should. Uh, she's uh, not born and raised in California, but she has certainly reshaped the state for the better. She was the lone dissenter uh, to, uh, um, you know, funding more war. Um, You're referring to the vote to invade Afghanistan in 2001. She was a lone dissenter in that vote that uh, to prove that action. Yeah. She's a uh, mentee of Shirley Chisholm, who uh, is widely considered to be the first black woman to ever run for president. Um, she is a fierce, fierce supporter of women and girls and abortion rights. Um, and she is my friend. And she is somebody who um, has absolutely done everything she can um, to mentor and guide and encourage 
young black women um, to run for office and to not be afraid of our power. And she's a delightful human being. Um, and I just wish her all the best. And she is representative of the best that this state has to offer. Love it. Alicia Gers, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. All right, there you have it. Alicia Garza. Thank you so much to Alicia for appearing on What is California? It was such a thrill to talk to her. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in once again to this humble undertaking. It's great to have you as well. And I look forward to catching up with you again next week. Let's do it all over again. What do you say? What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Airsdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free podcast in your inbox every Tuesday, bright and early, as well as a free roundup of weekend links, very cool California stories in your inbox every Friday. Did I mention the URL? whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Did I mention it's free? It's free. No excuses. Sign up today. whatiscalifornia.substack.com. You'll love it. If you have notes, comments, questions, suggestions, recommendation, uh, love letters, hate mail, other things I haven't even thought of yet, please email me. You know I'd love to hear from you. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I am always thrilled to receive your correspondence. Please subscribe to What is California wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend, tell 10 friends. And if you and your friends liked What is California, please, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It does help new listeners find us. That is going to do it from What is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. Thanks again for being with me. I'll catch you next time. Until then, as always, keep your eye on the bear.